these industries can change extremely quickly. And I'm super bullish that it's going to happen. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Welcome, friends, to episode 65 of the Business for Good podcast. How often have you wished that more billionaires use their money to do good in the world? Well, you are in luck, because in this episode, we talk with British billionaire Jim Mellon. In recent years, Jim has been most well-known, perhaps, for his work on human longevity research, which we discuss in a fun part of the end of this episode. But he has also become fixated on ending the factory farming of animals. As a result, Jim has learned an immensity about alternative protein and has invested in dozens of startups in the space. He even just published a book on the topic, Moose Law, in which he discusses his views on the industry, which companies he thinks will be winners, and yet which he thinks might not make it also. As you'll hear in this interview, Jim has little hope that humans are going to give up on eating meat. So he's betting instead on just simply making meat without the animals. In this conversation, we discuss when he thinks such clean meat will be price comparable to conventional meat, whether price parity is going to be sufficient, and which industries he thinks are the big white spaces in this sector and more. So, Enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with a truly interesting person who's given a lot of thought to just how he can use his role as an investor to solve some of the world's most pressing problems that we face today. Jim Mellon, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thank you very much, Paul. Nice to be talking to you. Hey, it's really great to be talking with you. As, as you know, we met a couple years ago in person, but it's great to be talking um, during the pandemic, although maybe toward the end of the pandemic, it seems. So hopefully uh, next time we'll be talking, it will be in person. But I'm really looking forward to our conversation because I really enjoyed your book. I read Moose Law word for word, and it was so impressive to me uh, to read about your story. And I'm wondering, can you just share a little bit about how someone who started out like you, not in the food and agriculture and alternative protein space, like what led you to make ending factory farming of animals your mission? Ah, that's a great question. Well, I, I basically, um, I've been in biotech for quite a number of years now, and uh, I'm very interested in uh, the, the idea that the cell ag, uh, which as you know, is what we're focused on, uh, industries are effectively using biotech processes. So that was one element. The other element is that I do not eat meat. Um, we don't eat meat in this household. Um, and I'm very anti-animal uh, cruelty. We, I, I noticed that you have you and your wife have a dog. Well, we can trump that. We have four dogs here. And um, uh, so we're very uh, positive about animals and, and animal welfare and uh, you know, our treatment of animals. So in fact, just this week, I spoke to, um, I know that you will know him and probably know him personally, Peter Singer, you know, the famous guy who wrote the first real book about um, animal ethics or our ethics towards animals. He's a, now an Australian professor, you know, uh, but very, very interesting. And uh, I spoke to him. I was very lucky to be able to speak to him. Well, that's really wonderful. Peter actually was a guest on this very podcast just a couple episodes ago. So you can go and check out that. He had a lot to say about food technology. And in addition to being a renowned philosopher and author, he's also a food tech investor and has invested in a uh, cell cultured foie gras company in France. Yeah, I read about that. Um, I don't know if, if I was uh, choosing one company to invest in, um, if it would be a foie gras company. I mean, even though foie gras is an absolutely disgusting 
uh, enterprise. Um, it's it, it seems to me like a bit of a niche market, and it's not something that will appeal to everyone on the planet, which is how we need to get uh, intensive farming uh, reduced or removed, is that we have to create foods that everyone will want to eat. And, and there's, you know, foie gras, caviar, kangaroo, and all these other sort of other exotic ones are, are niche markets at best. Yeah, I think that Peter's basic point about it was that he was essentially hedging his bet that he was thinking about how much money he spends philanthropically versus as he spends as an investor. And his investments are very small uh, because he's pretty bullish on philanthropy as well. But uh, either way, you know, it's still pretty cool to see uh, Peter investing in some of the food tech that we're going to be talking about today. So let me just get straight to your book, Jim. You know, it's a great book. It's called Moose Law. Now, for people who don't immediately get the pun there, what is Moose Law even referring to? Okay, um, that is a great question. So Moose Law is a riff off Moore's Law, Moore's Law, uh, which is M-O-O-R-E-S, with an apostrophe before the S, was invented by Gordon Moore, who was the co-founder of Intel. And it's more than 50 years old. And he posited that every 18 months, uh, the price of semiconductors would come down by 50% and the efficiency would double. And it's been more or less correct all the way through. And so I kind of riffed off that uh, with Moose Law because in order to get to the point where the food that you and I want to see dominate the food supply chain, uh, it has to come down in price and it has to increase in scale of production. And in a way, we're seeing that with um, uh, you know, the early cell ag products. So as you well know, in 2013, Mark Post unveiled his first um, Sell Ag Burger in London. He was backed by Sergey Brin, the co-founder of Google. And uh, it is suggested, no one really knows for sure, but it's suggested that that cost about 350,000 euros or close to $400,000. And today, uh, Mark's company, uh, Mosa Meat, claims that it can make those same burgers for $9. So that's very much on the trajectory of Moose Law. Uh, so that's where it comes from. Okay. And yeah, one of the lesser known things that people think about when they think about that 2013 unveiling is that they did not just make one multi-hundred thousand dollar burger, they actually made two. It kind of reminded me of the line from the movie Contact when they say, you know, when the first rule of government spending is why buy one when you can have two for twice the price. And this wasn't government spending, but it was, of course, subsidized spending um, by uh, Sergey Brin. And so they actually uh, made two of those patties, one of which they cooked up and served quite famously. The other was essentially plasticized and sits in a Dutch science museum on display where you can go see it. And I have personally seen it. It's pretty cool to see that piece of history there. Oh, I must go and see it myself. That, that would be very interesting. And of course, the great thing about, uh, Mark, well, not the great thing, but the, one of the interesting things about Mark Post is that for three or four years after the production of that first burger, he didn't have funding. And the whole thing sort of, uh, uh, you know, just went fairly dormant. So actually, uh, the fact that it's gone down to $9 now is testimony to just how quickly these products could come down in price, you know, over the next two or three years, much faster than I think most people appreciate. Well, we're going to talk about that. But before we do, this actually leads quite naturally to another term that you coined. So you coined Moose Law, which is very clever, but you also termed griddle parity. So what is that referencing there too? Okay, so uh, grid parity is the 
level at which, and it's used in the energy business, and you know it's very hot at the moment because of the uh, climate change uh, and you know all the investment in renewable energy. Um, it's at the point where the renewables, such as solar or wind power, come down to the same uh, cost price as electricity produced by fossil fuels or by nuclear power. That's called grid parity. So I thought, well, I'll just, you know, riff off another well-known phrase, and that's uh, and griddle parity means uh, the point at which the plant-based foods uh, and the cell ag foods come down to the same level as conventionally produced intensively farmed uh, foods. And griddle parity for plant-based foods is not very far away, as you, as you know better than I do. Um, in cell ag, you know, we're looking a few years out, basically. But uh, griddle parity would be a very big tipping point because at that point, um, you know, the taste, convenience, uh, health benefits, environmental benefits will be greater than with conventional foods for all, all the obvious reasons that, you know, your listeners and uh, you and I know very well. But when the price gets down to the same level, then it's, uh, you know, the game's on, basically. Yeah, I agree that the game is on. Um, I have heard some people, not you, but I've heard some people say they think the game is over at that point. And I do wonder whether that's true. Like, I think there are a couple limited cases where I've actually seen plant-based meat marketed at the same exact price as animal meat. And my suspicion is that it'll take actual, uh, you know, undercutting the cost of animal products before they really start gaining dominant market share. Um, so what do you think? Do you think price parity is sufficient? Is it game on or is it game over? Well, I, I, I don't think anyone really knows. But um, what I would say is that the pandemic has accelerated the process. And partly because the pandemic has encouraged people in the US and the UK in particular to try out um, you know, new types of food. Uh, and But partly also because I think people uh, are increasingly aware that uh, you know, the, these diseases, which have caused so much disruption to our lives in the last 20 years, and particularly in the last year, come from uh, farming malpractice, particularly in the Far East. And I think there'll be much more recognition that uh, if we get a bacterial pandemic, which is, you know, what we don't have at the moment, but where we have uh, antibiotics that are resistant to uh you know, to, to the, to the, the novel diseases that might come out of uh, zoonosis. Um, but we would be in a much worse situation than we are even today. And um, so we have to do something about the food supply. And I, I think the governments uh, are actually increasingly recognizing that. I, mean, it, the, I don't know about the American government, the British government definitely recognizes that. And um, that we, we actually have to, you know, lower the dependence on intensively farmed um, animals, because otherwise we're just going to end up with another or even more pandemics and, and more death, destruction and, and, you know, lockdowns and inconvenience for all of us. Yeah, you know, I think that there may be a phenomenon where just like we're seeing more and more tornadoes, more and more hurricanes, more and more uh, droughts, we might see more and more pandemics as well, which of course is going to be obviously very, very challenging for us as a species. Um, but we're going to talk more about price and, and price parity, or maybe I'll say griddle parity, uh, a little bit later. But I do want to ask you, Jim, about something that you wrote in the book, which really resonated with me, because you know I, I spent a lot of my life trying to raise awareness about the problems associated 
with factory farming of animals only to see meat consumption continue to rise and rise. And today we are farming more animals than ever before. Meat consumption is higher than it has ever been before. That's true in the United States. It's true in much of Europe. It's true in China and India and Brazil. Meat consumption is on the rise, not the decline right now. And you wrote something pretty poignant in the book, Moose Law. You said, and I'm quoting you here, you said, make no mistake, simply telling as many people as possible about the problem will not solve it. More and more articles will not solve it. At the end of the day, food choices are not made in our rational brain for the vast majority of people. If they can afford to eat meat, they will eat meat. So why do you think it is, Jim, that so many well-intentioned people believe that just raising awareness and telling people about the problems are going to be sufficient? Like that, It obviously hasn't worked, and yet still so many people who care so deeply about this issue are persisting in that type of a strategy. That's very good. I think ingrained behavior probably um, you know, we were all, I mean, you and I were probably brought up, you know, to, in an environment where meat was eaten and, uh, it just became part of our, uh, our daily lives. And, um, it is distressing that, uh, you know, meat consumption continues to go up because every time that meat consumption goes up, so does the suffering of animals and, and all the bad things associated with the production of that type of meat. However, let's look at some positive things. You know, people like yourself, for instance, proselytizers and a very, positive and articulate way are important, but it, as, as we both agree, our voices are not sufficient to change things. The second thing, uh, however, that it, it is changing is much more money is coming into this sector and money drives enterprise and change. And as, as more money comes in, and by the way, it is beginning to flood in, I think you'll see not just a greater consumer choice and um, uh, better products for consumers, um, but you'll also see a greater recognition by consumers as these companies have marketing budgets and they they make themselves better known, uh, which in turn will reduce uh, uh, and the tipping point for meat should be about two or three uh, years away, in my opinion. Um, the next thing is, of course, environmental change. Now, uh, it, I don't know how many people are cutting back their meat consumption because it is a massive contributor to environmental change. But what I will tell you is that I think that the carbon credit system, which is uh, you know beginning to sprout up around the world in quite a big way, particularly in Europe and, and also in Asia, will force uh, meat producing companies to pay effectively what are quite heavy taxes and uh, novel food companies to gain from carbon credits. So the umbrella of pricing from uh, conventional foods, which will rise in price, uh, will be very positive for the industry that you and I champion. In other words, you know, they will benefit from the fact that the conventional foods will become more expensive, not less expensive, as a result of the imposition of these carbon carbon taxes. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Well, I, I do want to talk about the idea of meat taxes, um, but you know, you, you've made this claim a couple times now during this interview, and it's probably the boldest claim that you make um, because it's not, it's, not a meat, it's not a meat tax per se. It is yeah. a tax on anyone who produces large-scale carbon emissions. Got it. Uh, they're, they're called carbon credits in Europe, and basically, what they, they trade for large amounts of money, huge amounts of money. Um, so, let's say you're a coal producer or you're a a chemical producer using, uh, you know, or a cement producer, you have to buy carbon credits from people who actually are virtuous. And uh, you know, this happens in, in the United States very much. The only reason that Tesla's made any profits is because of the sale of their carbon credits to 
uh, car companies that or auto companies that don't, uh, you know, aren't sufficiently electrified. I was stunned when I saw the numbers of how lucrative those credits are for Tesla. It's an incredible amount of their revenue is coming from just other car companies paying them. Yeah, so it's not not specifically a meat tax. It's just a tax that's going to, and it is a tax, of course, that's going to work very well for uh, the industries that you and I support. Well, let me just ask you then, we have tobacco taxes, we have gasoline taxes, we have alcohol taxes. Do you think that any countries will implement actual meat taxes? I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, the sugar taxes don't seem to have been very effective. Uh, it, I think Denmark was a country that, that tried it um, uh, most vigorously and it, it didn't seem to work. Uh, meat taxes, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you'd know better than me. I, my, my own view is that it's unlikely. Too many vested interests, too targeted towards a specific industry. Um, but as part of a broader brief, which is, you know, anyone who produces uh, large-scale carbon emissions is going to have to pay a tax. That encompasses the conventional meat industry, and that's got to be a good thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, <clears throat> one of the things that um, I, I think I, I was particularly uh, buoyed by your optimism on is this issue of when we're going to reach griddle parity here. So, you know, you write, and what I really thought of as like your boldest claim in the book is that you think that clean meat or cultivated meat or whatever you want to call it, meat grown from animal cells could reach griddle parity within as little as five to 10 years. So let me ask you, Jim, you know, plant-based meat has been on the market for decades. Um, It's never reached price parity for the most part. Uh, so why do you think that cultivated meat is going to be able to do it so quickly when plant-based meat hasn't been able to do it for decades? Okay, so I think, uh, of course, plant-based meat's been on the market for decades, but it has been taking off latterly because of the improvement in uh, its quality, um, the food innovation, the technolog- technological innovations that have occurred. Um, and as we all know, companies like Corn or Beyond or Impossible or Meatless Farms or whatever, have been doing very well as a result. And so uh, consumers are much more accepting of it, and you see it much more in supermarkets. Um, and uh, in my country, in the UK, uh, you can't walk into any one of the big supermarkets without seeing a substantial amount of this plant-based meat on sale, whereas five or 10 years ago, you wouldn't have seen it. The same goes for dairy um, alternatives. I mean, I, I, I think the figure in the United States is going to be at one-fifth of the dairy market this year will be alternatives. And it was half a percent as recently as 10 years ago. So, yes, there is massive traction occurring in, in the plant-based uh, uh, foods. It may not be visible to everyone yet, but it is, it is happening and it's going to be very, very big. As the scale in- increases, um, of course, the price starts to come down because, you know, the, the, the more that you make of something, the, this, exactly this Moose law, uh, the, the lower the price. In cultivated foods, the reason why I'm so bullish is because you know my my colleagues uh, really examine all the input prices into uh, cultivated foods. So they're looking at uh, the media price, they're looking at the growth factor price, they're looking at the bioreactor price, the scaffolding price, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of those are coming down, and they're going to come down even more. And uh, particularly in the growth factors, we we think. Um, and so ultimately, we model that the input price for or the inputs into Cultivated foods will be about two and a half to one. Now, you know as well as I do that in cows, it's about 25 to one and chickens somewhere between six and nine to one. So the capacity for 
these cultivated foods to come down below the price of conventional uh, foods and quickly, by the way, uh, is absolutely there. And I think, yes, five, I think five years is a bit of a stretch, but I think 10 years, absolutely likely. And I'm not, it's not just me uh, saying this, you know, Rethink X, the very uh, esteemed UK consultancy thinks that by 2030, half of all the meat eaten in the world will be either plant-based or cell ag uh, based in a, in a roughly equal quantity. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're at a very massive tipping point. Now, you know, I'll get back to the dairy stuff here, Paul, because your two biggest dairy companies in the United States, Borden and Dean Foods, have gone bust because of the encroachment of the, of the uh, alternative plant-based uh, uh, milks. And uh, that's before you get the perfect day and no quote type, uh, you know, rep actual replicas of, of dairy milk coming onto the market, which will be quite soon. So, you know, th these industries can change extremely quickly. And um, I'm, I'm super bullish that it's going to happen. I, my, my big concern with this whole industry is not that the technology isn't going to happen or moves more won't work or that, uh, you know, the regulators will get in the way or the lobbyists will be so strong as to stop the progress. I, my, my big concern is the execution risk. Can these companies actually go from nothing to something big in a relatively short space of time? It's very hard to create something from nothing, let alone to do it effectively and successfully. Um, and I too am concerned about that for a variety of reasons and a variety of companies. And, you know, we've already seen a number of companies that were founded and looked promising at one point, either stall or fail. And so we can talk about that because you're, you're actually pretty frank in the book about companies that you think are promising and companies you don't think are promising. Maybe we can talk about that in a bit. But I just want to confirm what I hear you implying and what I thought you were saying in the book as well, which is that you really seem to be even more bullish on cultivated meat companies than plant-based meat. Now, of course, I know you invest in both, but let me just ask it to you this way. If you could only invest in one, what would you advise investing in, cultivated or plant-based? Well, I, I would actually invest in cultivated. And the reason is not because I don't think plant-based is, and that's what we eat here, for instance. You know, we have Beyond Burgers often in our house. Um, it's because the IP protection in the cell-based stuff, and bearing in mind my background is in, is in biotech, is much stronger. And uh, the, uh, the, the moat that these companies can build up around themselves is, is greater as a result. So I... Uh, I prefer it from that point of view. Um, I also think that, uh, you, you know, the, the, there is a wider variety of opportunity because we're not just looking at foods. Obviously, we're looking at materials. We're looking at, uh, you know, all the, the stuff that you know about the leather, the, um, the threads, the collagen, uh, which gives a, a bigger uh, combined total addressable market to the plant-based, uh, sorry, to the cell ag companies than for the plant-based companies. So it's not just about food. Oh, okay. Well, fair enough. Good point. Um, okay. So Jim, you wrote in the book, you say, quote, um, there is no humane way of farming animals. And then you go on and you start talking about fish and you say, and I quote again, Humans are literally at war with fish using quasi-military techniques to scoop up as many as possible of the creatures, depleting supplies, and in many cases, destroying them. So you are invested in some of the alternative fishing companies, and I know that you're pretty um, bullish, or maybe I should say fishish, on them. So tell me about who you've invested in, and if you want, why you haven't invested in others, since I know you share some pretty frank thoughts in the book on this topic about who you think are going to be the winners in this space. 
Okay, well, in, in fish, now fish is interesting because uh, it will be faster to the market. Um, as you well know, uh, Blue Nalu is very likely to be on the US market by the end of this year. Uh, the price of its mahi mahi fillets will be approximately twice that of the regular retail price, but that's not a huge uh, gap. That's on small production of only a few hundred kilograms a week. Um, uh, my absolute standout favorite is Blue Nalu. Um, I think that they have a platform technology that's really, really good. They have engaged with their regulator, which is the FDA, on an exclusive basis since the fish only is regulated by the FDA, unlike uh, meats, which are regulated by both the USDA and the FDA. And uh, they have a very veteran uh, management team that we have high confidence in. Um, so I think that, and, and the other great thing about fish is that, yes, there are so many reasons why you would want to eat cultivated uh, fish over farmed fish or wild-caught fish. Uh, toxins, antibiotics, microplastics, you name it. We are all familiar with the fact that if you eat fish more than twice a week, your, you know, your, your level of toxins and mercury can go up significantly. So you've got to be very careful about how much fish you eat. Um, and that doesn't happen with the, uh, with the cultivated uh, fish. So I think fish is going to be the first standout success in this um, area, if you leave aside uh, dairy products. Um, and Blue Nalu is the absolute uh, you, you know, top company. Now, there are other companies in the field. We have invested in Chioc, which is a Singapore-based company um, engaged in the production of shrimp paste, which is um, an Asian type of thing where you don't actually have to have a structured shrimp. You just get the shrimp taste effectively. Uh, you know, in terms of winners and losers, I would say that uh, Blue Nalu is uh, a, a, an obvious winner to me. I'm not sure about Shiok. But, you know, I, 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 you know we, 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 we went into it early and I'm not sure that we, that was a wise course for us. Okay. Well, we've had the seat. We're not saying any more because, you know, <laughs> I, do, I don't want to get a, a lawsuit from, uh, from Shiok Meats. But, uh, you know, it's not, it's, not, um, it's not one of our favorites. Well, we've actually had the CEOs of both of those companies on, um, uh, both Sandia and Lou, respectively, from Shiok and Blue Nau on past episodes of this show. So if people want to learn more about those companies, you can go back and, uh, and listen to those. They're both really interesting interviews. So, okay, I, I was surprised, Jim, in the book when you talked about uh, corn, Q-U-O-R-N, the uh, company making fungi-based meat out of, uh, out of um, the UK. I was surprised that you were not more bullish on them because they seem like they've been a really major success story to me. I mean, they got acquired for a huge amount. They've done well. And you basically said that you don't really think that's going to be the future of the alternative meats and that you thought maybe at best it would be something like a filler for sausages or sausage rolls or something. So why why do you think that? I mean, why do you think that corn is at best going to be a filler as opposed to becoming maybe like a, a Beyond Meat type success? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, it's because it is. I mean, you know, corn is largely fillers for sausages and for pasties, which are the things you don't have in the you don't eat as much of in the United States. Um, and uh, but it's also it's it's interesting. I mean, I don't really I don't know if you know that it's owned by a Filipino company called Nissin Foods, which is a private Filipino company, and. Uh, there is a husband and wife team at the head of that. Um, 
Henry Sosanto is the husband, and he is actually a personal investor in a number of these uh, cell ag uh, companies himself. Uh, they bought it, you're right, they bought it for 400 and something million pounds. I think it was a very astute buy. Um, I think it's going to be successful. I, Nissin Foods itself is going public on the Filipino stock exchange at the moment. Um, I just don't regard it as, uh, as you know, it's, it, Nissin Foods is making noodles and it's making all sorts of other food as well. It's not one of it. It's not its main division. It's not the reason that you would necessarily buy Nissin Foods. So it's from an investment point of view, it's a bit like buying Kellogg's, which on the basis it's got one or two investments in you know promising new food companies. But we all know that Kellogg's is actually about cereals and it's regular lines, basically. So it's all diluted in the mix. That, that's why I, it's not that I, I don't think corn's a good company. It's just I think that the corn element of Nissin is small. Got it. Yeah, I, I, I was surprised by it because I'm a regular corn consumer myself. I actually really enjoy, uh, they have a, a number of their lines are vegan and I think they're really good. Um, but I'm also, uh, as you know, um, and, and may disagree with uh, that, uh, you know, I'm a fan of getting meat companies to use less meat. And so if corn is selling its mycoprotein as something that's going into sausages so that meat companies can use fewer pigs, I'm quite pleased by that. I think that's a good idea. Um, so what do you think? Well, it is. So that's what you do and very successfully. So Thank I, mean, you. I think that's one of the key elements. And in, in, as you rightly point out, reducing overall consumption of meat, um, not just because of the animals, but because it's good for people to eat less meat. Yes. Yeah, that's that's how I feel about it. And, you know, if you look at, you know, you're talking about like uh, Rethink X and some of the other uh, reports, you know, even their most bullish projections show that within a decade, you know, m maybe uh, plant-based meat can be 10 or 20 percent or cultivated and plant-based meat can be like 10 or 20 or maybe even 30 percent of the total meat market. And that, to me, suggests that the vast majority of meat for a long time is going to be coming from factory-farmed animals. And so if we can get that meat, that will still be the dominant source of, of uh, meat for people to have less animal protein in it and more plant protein. It's going to be better for animals, better for their health, better for the world in general. Um, and so I think it's a good strategy. Um, I don't think it's the only strategy. I'm not saying I think it's the best strategy. I just think it's a good supplemental strategy. And um, I will put in a personal plug, you know, in the book, uh, Moose Law, you rate all the companies, I mean, scores and scores of companies in the, um, in the back of the book there with your rating of one through five stakes of how promising. And I was quite proud that the Better Meat Co. got four out of five stakes in your book, Jim. So thank you for that. We're honored by it. And we... we, we Having spoken to you, I guess you, I'd better give you another one as well. <laughs> okay. The, in, the, uh, in the second edition, we want to get five out of five. But no, we're on there for four out of five. That's good because... In the, in the next edition, you're definitely five out of five. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. <laughs> yes. Well, if Beyond Meat got five out of five and putting Better Meat Co. at four out of five, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> Okay, so let me ask you, Jim, you know, you have uh, diligenced huge numbers of companies, you know, so much more about the space than the average investor in here, you've written an entire book on it. Uh, surely, though, there are companies that don't yet exist that you think could exist that maybe could do a lot of good and would be lucrative. So are there any freebies that you're willing to give away here companies that you think, hey, if these folks had a good business plan, maybe I'd consider investing in them? Are there any company ideas that you want to throw out there for anybody listening who might be thinking, hey, I'd like to start my own alternative protein company. Answer to that is 
Not really, because we're about to create a white space company ourselves under our agronomics brand. Um, and so that's obviously uh, taking technology from a research institution and backing scientists, entrepreneurs, which is the way that we operate in our biotech businesses. Um, but if I was looking at it um, from, you know, from a, a, a startup point of view, one thing is obviously you, you mustn't infringe the patents of the existing companies. And that's something to you know, look at very closely when you're, when you're starting your company up. But I think the whole geographical spaces in which entrepreneurs should be thinking about setting things up. I spoke to Credit Suisse's conference for Asia or Asian investors last week, and there's almost nothing in Asia. We talked about Xioc, um, the Cell X in China, there's Avant Meats in Hong Kong, um, there's um, Integri Culture in Japan, but really very, very little. Uh, and yet Asia is the going to be the largest market for um it may already be for animal proteins in the world. So surely there should be more innovation out of Asia. Um, I also think in my own country, the UK, which imports half of its food and has a very long standing uh, background in biosciences, what, what, which is the basis for a lot of this stuff, uh, we should be starting more companies. And I, I do believe the government is going to be encouraging that. Um, because at the moment, you know, the three clusters of uh, that we see are your country, the United States, um, obviously always the leader in, in forward-thinking technologies, and then um, Israel, and then uh, Holland. Uh, and uh, But we don't see a lot, really, in many other parts of the world. So I think, I think regionally people should be thinking about setting up businesses. Uh, in terms of the low-hanging fruit, I wouldn't go into any of the niche markets uh, that – you know, because there's so much to do in the in the mass markets, and um, uh, if you're not infringing anyone's patents, I would think that uh, in any of the material areas, there's a, there's still white space opportunity, and in uh, in the ground meat market, I think there's still quite considerable opportunity, and of course in fish, I think there's opportunity, and then you know the 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 dairy uh, companies, you know the perfect day, which has raised a huge amount of money, um, and which I think we're doing incredibly well. Um, we invest in a company called Legendary, which is out of Berlin and uh, is seeking to use the same processes as um, perfect day to produce uh, mozzarella substitutes. But surely there are other uh, opportunities in cheese and in other dairy products um, for company for entrepreneurs around the world. Great. Well, that's exciting. And I totally agree. Uh, there is an ocean of opportunity in alternative seafood, pun, it, cer pun certainly intended. And uh, if I were making my own recommendation in this space, I think there's so much more room for more companies in, in that space. So hopefully, uh, some of them will be coming into existence. Maybe some of them will be inspired by your words here, Jim, and we'll uh, decide to get started after hearing you. So let me ask you, you know, you talk in the book about in the future, when we're raising far fewer animals, you think that there will still be some farm animals, like we still have some, you know, horse-drawn carriage rides and so on in cities. Um, but, and then you say you think that the affluent may still eat some hobby animals. But let me ask you, like, if we get to a time when there are so few animals being raised, do you think people will allow that? Like, you think that there will be a time when so few animals are being raised that the consciousness surrounding the treatment of animals changes sufficiently that people would not even allow that type of hobby animal consumption, as you call it? Well, I would hope so. Uh, I just don't know. And, and you know, 
it's uh, it would be great if that was the case because it is well i mean we're preaching to the converted here but it is an absolute scandal uh about you know the way that food is produced and there is no i mean you know we're all just made of cells aren't we so there is no justification for slitting anyone and any sentient being's throat uh in order to eat it there is none and uh so it doesn't matter if it's you know massaged in kobe and fed beer and you know lives in a lovely bucolic environment and then you know it's it's slaughtered at, uh when it's uh in a sort of gentle and humane fashion it doesn't make any it, it doesn't make any difference to me at all I, I would like to see it all eradicated got it okay so let me ask you then are there any resources jim so for people who share your vision of a more humane, more sustainable food system. They maybe are thinking, I'd like to become an investor myself, or maybe they're thinking I want to join one of these companies or even start one of these companies. Are there any resources after they've read Moose Law that you would recommend that they check out that have been helpful for you or for other people you know that you would recommend to them? Yeah, I think you go to the Good Food Institute, look at their website, look at their uh, free to view or free to you know, read uh, information, which is very good. Uh, I'm a big fan of, and I know you are too, of Bruce Friedrich and his team. Um, I think they're the best uh, initial point of contact, and they are also uh, commercially savvy in the sense that they they know what the landscape is like for um, for new companies, and they can be very helpful in that respect. And, and they're, they're, you know, I, I just think they're very good people. Um, then. Uh, it, you know, there are multiple books on you know, why we shouldn't eat animals. And uh, there aren't many books about, I, I read, um, I think it was Chase Purdy's book about, uh, effectively about Eat Just or Just Eat. But it, it covers some of the other companies, including Memphis Meats. That's, that's an interesting read. But it's more, it's more sort of journalistic and anecdotal than uh, the one that I've written, which is basically, you know, here are all the companies. This is what we think of them. You know, here's all their contact details if you want to get in touch with them, which I think is probably the better way of doing it. Um, it's important to remember that there are, as far as I'm aware, not one of these uh, cell ag companies that are is public yet. And um, it won't be very long before they are. Uh, I'm sure the SPAC boom is going to uh, introduce some of these companies to the, to the market. Um, but uh, at the moment, it's very difficult for retail investors or for non-institutional investors to get invested in, in, um, in this area. Uh, and, uh, and the other thing, you know, is to get in touch. I mean, I don't know how, how, how many emails you want to get, Paul, but, uh, you know, people like yourself, uh, are great points of contact, very happy on LinkedIn for people to get in touch with me. I'll put in touch with the right people. You know, I think the more people that join our party, the better, frankly. And, and if you are an entrepreneur and you're looking for funding, then, you know, we are always interested in looking at, at, at good ideas and business plans and, uh, and seeing if we can be of help. That's fantastic. And we will certainly include then your LinkedIn in the show notes of this episode. And people can always contact me through the website, businessforgoodpodcast.com. I do get emails literally every day with something relating to some questions for resources or something else that people are seeking. And I'm always happy to hear from people. Uh, I view my role uh, as really more than my own company, of which I'm very proud, but also as someone who's trying to bolster the entire alternative protein space so that it won't be alternative for much longer, that it'll be the mainstream rather than the alternative protein. 
Um, so I appreciate that, Jim, and it's wonderful of you to make yourself so available to folks. Now, uh, let me ask you, you know, finally, one of the things that you were most well-known for prior to being an alt-protein investor was somebody who has an intense passion for longevity. And when we met first a couple years ago, you were telling me, you were essentially regaling me with tales of how you believe that uh, maybe even the first person to live to 200 will have already been born. So how long, not how long would you like to live, but how long do you think you're going to live? Well, my dad's 92. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping to, I mean, I hope he, he makes it to 100 and plus. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, he's in good form. He's, uh, he's actually the oldest public company, uh, director of a public company in the UK. Yeah. And he's, uh, he's been learning Italian and the lockdown and all that sort of stuff. So stay engaged uh, is one of the messages. Um, it is, obviously, the pandemic has thrown a lot of stuff up in the air. And, you know, and unfortunately, it's demonstrated that older people are much more susceptible because of their um, lowered immune systems to disease um, and that we need to build up that those immune systems. And there are many, many projects in the works to do that. The company that I was regaling you about, Juvenescence, is now valued at close to a billion dollars and it's about to go public. So, you know, the industry, rather like the uh, our industry, the, you know, the, the, the new agrarian revolution industry is beginning to, um, to, to take off and attract serious money. Um, but it's still the dial-up phase of the internet. You know, it's it's uh, we don't exactly know what's going to work, but we know that something's going to work. But I can tell you that in ten or twenty years' time, there will be pills that you and I can take that will be uh, will improve our health span, which is the number of healthy years that we live. That we're not sitting and dribbling in a in a chair in a nursing home or a care home until the end of our lives. That will be much more robust. And there are strategies uh, that are being developed in close proximity which will allow us to live three, four, five extra years. And those years will uh, will snowball. There'll be more and more of them. So yeah, I don't think that anyone is alive today is going to live to 200, but I think 150 is, um, is a very good target. Uh, and uh, who knows? It might be you, Paul. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who would rather it be somebody else, but I'll take it if that happens. So hopefully, hopefully you and I will uh, be centenarians and we'll be enjoying our our time together and your dad will still be alive and we'll be taking whatever these magic pills are. I'll look forward to it. I'll I'll sign up for them. Don't worry. Very good, Jim. Well, uh, it's really great to talk with you. Congratulations on the book. I can I can attest that not only did I enjoy it, but I actually sent it to one of uh, the investors of the Better Meat Co. who's on our board of directors, and he read it and was raving about it, saying how useful he thought it was as well. So from a real bona fide investor right there, you got a great endorsement. So thanks so much for writing it. Thanks for all you're doing to help advance this space, Jim. And we'll look forward to continuing to cheer for all the entrepreneurs in here together. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.